Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 17, 32, 52. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, he said, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic, and he tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I can't go on these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, and then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now, meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, he kept coming closer to David. And he looked over and he saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And reaching into his bag, he took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. And David ran and he stood over him and he took hold of the Philistine's sword and he drew it from the scabbard and after he killed him, he cut off his head with that sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and they ran. And then the men of Israel and Judah, they surged forward with a shout and they pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. You know, every week when we read the scripture together at the very end, we have that kind of call and response. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we do that to remind ourselves that these aren't just the words of men. They're the words of God that he's given to us. And what really struck me this week is that our God's a God who doesn't just give us commands and instructions. He's a God who gives us stories, and he gives us great stories. 
And this story is the most famous event in David's life. It's probably the most famous story in the entire Bible and one of, if not the most famous story in the history of the world. It's provided inspiration and encouragement to people you know, through, throughout the centuries of the young shepherd boy taking down the giant. Typically though, when we read the story, we take away lessons like, well, the lesson of the story is the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Or, you know, don't, don't count out the little guy or don't, don't write off the underdog. I mean, we're in NCAA football season, right? And so every week there's a David, quote, David and Goliath battle. And they talk about it in a way like, don't, don't count out the guy that the odds are stacked against. And well, that's part of what's going on in this text. I would say if that's our only understanding of this text, that understanding is a bit shallow because this text is, it goes deep and it deals with one of the most fundamental questions of life, which is how do you handle fear? What do you do with your fear? Where do you find courage to face life in the midst of the hardships and challenges and complexities that we all experience day in and day out. This is a text that speaks to us at a very deep and profound level. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this text into three headings. First, we're going to look at Saul's cowardice and the need for courage, why we need courage. Second, we're going to look at David's confidence and what's at the essence of courage. And then we're going to finish by talking about Goliath's defeat and the source of courage, where it comes from. But we're going to start with Saul. And one of the challenges with this, this narrative is it's 50-something verses long, and we didn't want to have Scott up here reading for 30 minutes uh, before the sermon. And so I want to fill you in just so you have an understanding of the bigger story, because this is a story we all think we know, but oftentimes we miss the details. Starting back in verse 2, we're told that Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So it set up this giant valley. One side's the Israelites, the other side's the Philistines. And what you have to know to understand this text is that the Philistines were the arch enemy of the Israelites. I mean, the Israelites had a lot of people who didn't like them, who attacked them, but the Philistines were the ones who pop up again and again and again. You read the Old Testament, you read the book of 1 Samuel, you will see the name Philistine pop up again and again. They're always bumping into them. In chapter four of 1 Samuel, they're in battle and the Philistines just did a number on the Israelites. They captured the Ark of the Covenant. They took it on a joyride throughout the Philistine land and kind of made a mockery of God and of the Israelites. And so the Philistines were not good people. They were vicious. They were mean. And they wanted to destroy. They wanted to wipe the earth uh, from Israel or of Israel. And so they're coming up once again to battle. And we're told in verse four that a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels and his shield bearer went ahead of them. So you have the two armies 
on each side of the valley. And this man, this giant, who's nine feet tall, emerges from the Philistine camp. And his armor weighs 125 pounds. The point of a spear weighs 15 pounds, just the point. That's a, like a bowling ball. Uh, and it says that a spear was like a weaver's rod, which I don't know what that means, but I think it means it was really, really big. And so he, he walks out into the middle of the valley and then he lays out a charge. We're told in verse eight, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And so what Goliath's doing here, something that would happen sometimes in that day is what was called representative warfare. And he's saying, I'm going to come out and I want to fight on behalf of the Philistines. You send a champion out and the two of us will battle. And whoever wins that battle, it's kind of a winner take all. If Goliath wins, the Israelites serve the Philistines. If the champion of the Israelites win, then the Philistines will serve them. Now, what's easy to miss if you don't sit down and read the whole book of 1 Samuel all the way through, when Goliath's saying, choose for yourself a champion, Israel had already chosen a champion. They had chosen a champion when they asked for a king. The entire reason Israel wanted a king was for a situation just like this one. In verse, or in chapter eight, the Israelites declared to, to the prophet Samuel, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So, if you go back to that day when Goliath saying, bring me your champion, people would be looking to Saul, especially when you consider the fact that what we know of Saul is he was a head taller than anyone else. So he was a giant in his own right. You combine all that together and the expectation is when Goliath comes out, Saul should go out to meet him and fight on behalf of his people. But we read in verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And then in verse 16, we're told that for 40 days, the Philistines came forward, or the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. And so the situation is this, if, if Saul doesn't go out and fight him, Israel's gonna be captured and enslaved. But when Goliath puts out the challenge, Saul looks with everyone else and he's like, let's just go back to camp. And for 40 days when they're up eating their cereal, you know, at camp, and then that, at night when they're making the s'mores and smoking pipes around the campfire, there's this shadow of a giant looming over them. And the taunts of the giant are ringing through the camp. And you can imagine people, the soldiers looking at Saul Saul, I think he's talking to you. And Saul's like, no way. You want me to go? You're out of your mind. There's no way I'm going to go fight this. You know, he, he failed to step in. He failed to do the right thing. This was an act of cowardice. That's the old word for this. Cowardice is avoiding doing what you're supposed to do. It's avoiding doing the right thing. It's ignoring or neglecting the call. And before we look down on Saul for his cowardice, we have to acknowledge how often we're just like him. 
We also have to acknowledge that while Goliath is dead, there are still giants in the land and there are still giants in our lives. There are still things that tower over us. There are still things that haunt us. There are things that keep us up at night. There are things that cause us to have to take prescription medicine just to slow our brains down enough to get to sleep because we're so worried and we're so afraid. And some of the giants in our life, things like addiction that you don't want to acknowledge and you don't want to deal with. Maybe it's a drug, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's something else. Some of the personal giants in our lives, they're, you know, anxiety and depression, which make it hard for you to want to get out of bed in the morning. Other people, the giant in your life is a particular sin or a habit of sin in your life that it's kind of like Israel with the Philistines. You just bump up against it over and over and over again. It never seems to go away. Maybe you're converted at the age of 14. And when you're converted, you were like, I'm going to slay this giant. I'm no longer going to struggle with this. And now you're 40 and yet the giant's still in your life. We have personal giants that we want to run and hide from. There's relational giants, strange relationships between, you know, or, or with a parent or son, a daughter, a friend. You know, when your wife or your husband comes to you and says, I can't do this anymore. Or when your child comes to you and says, Dad, I don't think I believe in God the same way you do. I mean, those are giants. You add those together, and then you think about just the cultural giants. It's, it's no secret that we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the orthodox traditional Christian faith, and Christians are being pushed to the margins of society. And we got questions. What's the church going to look like 50 years, 100 years? What's this world going to be like for our kids as they're growing up? So you put all these things together. How do you face them? I mean, that's a lot, and I just skimmed the surface, and I'm sure each one of you could say, you forgot to mention this one, and you forgot to mention this one. How do we face these things? So often, I think we're like Saul. Here in the moment, we can say, yeah, man, that's a, I, I totally agree. Those things are real. But then we leave, and then we just get distracted. That's what we tend to want to do. We want to avoid the giants. We want to distract ourselves. We just care about the game, who won or lost. We care about the show, you know, which dragon killed who. Like that's, that's our obsession. And it's just like Saul. It's avoiding the situation. It's cowardice. You know, I was watching Daniel Tiger with my three-year-old this week. Anyone Daniel Tiger fan here? Uh, and there's, it was, one of the episodes was on how do you deal with fear? And there is a song, when you're scared, close your eyes and think of something happy. Anyone know that cut? Yeah. Now, that might be a good strategy for a four-year-old who's afraid of thunder. But when you have a grown man like Saul, that's how he's dealing with it. Closing his eyes, sitting around the fire, thinking of something happy. Don't be afraid. It's cowardice. It's a lack of courage. You see, courage is the capacity to do the right thing regardless of the danger and regardless of the consequences. It's, it's almost this ability that you work deep into your soul to just move quickly and swiftly to do the right thing in spite of your fears. And without courage in life, you'll live in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety, of avoidance, 
of ignorance, of timidity. And I know courage is not something we talk about. I mean, we live in such a jaded culture that courage isn't necessarily a virtue we hold forth anymore. But don't kid yourself. If you want to live the life God has called you to live, you can't do it without courage. I mean, the call and the demands of life, of God, they're so massive. Every day we are faced with opportunities to either step in or to run. And when we run, when we lack courage, we hurt others and we hurt ourselves, just like Saul. Some of you, your friendships are really suffering right now because you lack courage to step in and to say the hard things. Some of your kids are really suffering right now because you lack the courage to say no. Maybe you lack the courage to say no to them. Maybe you lack the courage to say no to your job or to the pressure you feel to be this immensely successful person. But you don't want to have a hard conversation in life, and so you just go with the flow, and it hurts you, it hurts them. So much of the pain and suffering we experience in life is a result of our inability to step in and do the right thing, even when it hurts. Long-term, that hurts us even more. And so that's the lesson we learned from Saul. Like we, we need courage if we're gonna move forward in life in a way that honors God and leads to flourishing. But courage is hard. Now, what I love about this text, what the narrator does, right after telling us that Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed, the very next verse, the author leads us to shift our gaze with two words, now, David. David enters the story. He's probably between the age of 15 and 17. He enters the story as an errand boy. You know, we learn that his three older brothers are on the front lines, which means they're sitting around fires with Saul. But David's still at home. He's tending a few sheep. And his dad has tasked him with this responsibility of taking food and supplies to the front line to his brothers and then bringing back reports. And at one point in the text, it talks about David taking 10 cheeses to his brothers. And I think it's a funny verse for a number of reasons, but I think that's why it's there is, is showing you how menial David's tasks were. Hey, you're gonna take the Ritz and the Gouda, you take it up to your brothers. They're gonna sit around the fire. And so David, he's faithful to the call. And so one of the trips he takes to the front lines, we're told in verse 23, as he was talking with them, this is the other soldiers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it this time. And we're told that when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? <laughs> who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And so imagine the scene, David's on the front line, Goliath wanders out into the valley, everyone starts running and bailing as Goliath starts taunting. And then as they're running, they're like, you know, if someone actually would go fight the guy, like they get a pretty sweet deal. And David kind of overhears it, so he's like, wait, can you clarify once again for me? What do you get? 
Oh, you get riches beyond your wildest imagination. You get to marry a princess and you never have to deal with the IRS ever again for the rest of your life. David's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Let's go. Uh, I think David really is a bit dumbfounded because he's 15, 16, 17. And he's, he's looking and he's, he's like, what? how is this guy coming out day in and day out, mocking you and ultimately mocking our God? Why don't you step in? And David's older brother comes and, you know, it's, it's a great scene. If you are a younger sibling, you, you can read it later, but his older brother comes and just classic older brother move. Why are you even here? Why are you even talking? Go home and tend your sheep. And David's like, can I not even say a word? Can I not even ask a question? And in the midst of that, word gets back to Saul that there's this kid walking around, asking what he gets if he slays the giant. And so Saul sends for David and we read in verse 32, that David, when David's brought before Saul, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart. Let no one lose courage on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy and he has been a fighting man from his youth. He's saying, David, you're too green and he's too mean. You can't go up against him. You're just a kid. And then David responds and said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, if we just stop right there, it seems like David is filled with the overconfidence that only comes from youth and a wild imagination. You know, I've killed lions, I've killed bears, I'll kill this giant. Sure you will, little David, and you'll be an astronaut and play shortstop for the Yankees. Like, you can do anything you want. But, but there's more. Because he finishes it off in saying, verse 37, the Lord, the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. We see that there's something deeper going on in David here. That what's fueling his fire is not, you know, he wants to marry a princess and be rich. It's not youthful arrogance, it's faith. If you were here last week, we know that, that the prophet Samuel, by this point, he'd already come to David, laid hands on him, anointed him as the future king. The spirit of God came upon him in power. And so David's been living the spirit-filled filled life and so when lions or bears have come, he's leaned into the Lord and the Lord's delivered him and he's saying, I've dealt with these things. I can, I can go deal with these problems as well. And it's here we really get to the essence of courage. It's here where Bible, the Bible lets us in on really the secret in some ways of courage. You see, the world tells you that the way you face your fears is by looking within yourself the way you face your fears, the way you deal with your problems, the way you overcome obstacles is you look within yourself and you believe in yourself and you tell yourself that you're strong and you're smart and you're beautiful and you're a warrior and you can handle anything that comes your way. There are hundreds of books 
written every year that kind of hold forth this vision. Like if you want to tackle the giants in your life, you just got to believe in yourself. You know, Carry On Warriors, a New York Times bestseller. That's the, the whole point of the book. Just believe, believe in yourself. I was looking up other books and I came across one this week. I can't even read the title because we're in church. So I'll summarize it. But the title of the book was, You Are a Bad Mamma Jamma. Uh, that's the part I paraphrased. Uh, and then the subtitle of the book was How to Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. And that has been on Amazon's bestseller list for 17 weeks straight. So it's not a fringe thing. The world tells us when you've got giants, you look within yourself, you believe in yourself, then you can face them, which, which you could boil all these up in the, you know, the epic words of Stuart Smalley. You know, I, you guys remember Stuart Smalley? I'm good enough, smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. That's how our world tells us to deal with these things. And you know what? Sometimes it might, it might help you a little bit. It might, it might land you the job interview or it might get you a date. But if that's how you deal with the giants of life, and you're not gonna stick it out in the job when it gets hard, you're not gonna make it 20 years in marriage, you might get the date, you won't make it in the marriage. That's how you're gonna go about it. Furthermore, that kind of positive self-thinking and visualization, like it might help you on a superficial level, but how is that any help when the doctor tells you you got stage four cancer? How do you look in the mirror and say, I'm strong when your body's falling apart? How do you look in the mirror and say, I'm beautiful when, when you're emaciated? You know, when a real giant comes before you, this whole believe in yourself nonsense crumbles before it because we all know we're weak. We all know that we're not nearly as strong as we think we are. We all know that we can't even do some of the most basic things of life that we want to do. We just can't do it. You want to lose 10 pounds and how long does that take? You want to start exercising. You want to get your finances. We can't even master those things. What happens when a real giant comes? Now, in contrast to the world, which tells you look within, or look within yourself, we see David, and David's, this is the secret. He's not looking within himself. He's looking outside of himself. The source of his courage isn't something that he wells up inside of himself. It's something that comes from the outside. And this is why when Saul comes and says, all right, you're gonna wear my tunic, and he starts putting the armor on, and David gets it on and kind of walks around. He says, I can't do this. He says, it's not how, I'm not, I'm not going to fight like you would fight, Saul. I'm not resting in my giftedness or my skill, trusting in the Lord. And so he throws it off. And we, we really see this in, in the speech, which is kind of the longest part of the whole narrative. After Goliath says, what am I, a dog? Did you send a kid to come after me with sticks? And then David, kind of one of the greatest speeches you know, war speeches ever. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me. The Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know, here it is, that is not by sword or spear or ability 
or knowledge that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. See, David, it's completely external. Over and over again, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Nowhere does David say, I've done all these things when he's given the speech to the Philistine. He doesn't mention the bear or the lion. He's like, no, I want to be really clear because I'm about to whoop you and I want you to know why. It's not because I'm great. It's because the Lord is great. He's looking outside. And what I want you to see, because day in and day out, you are being told by this world to believe in yourself more and more and more. Listen, I'm not against having self-esteem. I'm not opposed to that. Jesus said, love your neighbors, you love yourself, so you should love yourself at some level. What I'm saying is, if you think the way you're gonna deal with the problems in life is by looking within, you're gonna live a life of misery. And you're gonna, you're either gonna be a coward or you're gonna be a fool. That's what the world holds forth. And David holds forth this alternate vision where he's got steadfast faith and courage in something outside of himself. And this is what we see again and again in the Bible. This is what's commended again and again in the Bible. This is where Christianity is so different than the world. The world says, look within. The Bible says, no, no, look to God. You know, nowhere in the Bible is someone commended for believing in themselves. You know, Abraham believed in himself and the Lord counted it as righteousness. You know, or Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I am with me and I believe in myself and I am strong and I am courageous and I'm a beautiful warrior and I can tackle anything. It's ridiculous, right? No, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is with me. God is our ever-present help and our strength. He's our refuge in times of trouble. What this text shows us is that if we want to find courage, we have to look with, not look within, we gotta look, look outside of ourselves. That's the meaning here. We gotta look beyond ourselves. It's not something we well up inside of ourselves. It comes from the outside in. It's trusting in God and faith in God. But we can't stop here because... If all we take out of this text is have faith like David and you'll slay giants, we're not gonna slay many giants because faith is hard and because life is hard. If all you take out of this, is if you just had more faith, you know, you could slay all the giants in your life. That's, that's not really helpful, especially if someone's suffering, people who are afraid, telling people in the midst of their fear and suffering, you just need to have more faith. Anyone ever told you that before? right? Salt in the wound. Thanks. You know, I'm, I'm clinging on to faith in God by a thread right now. And you're coming and telling me I just need to have more faith. And if I would have more faith, then I wouldn't have these problems. Like if we're not careful and if all we take out of this text is put your faith outside of yourself, it can quickly turn into kind of a sort of prosperity gospel where if you just believe enough, you'll be able to deal with all of life's problems. Don't hear me wrong. We need more faith. We need to grow in our faith. But there's something more we need to see in this text. You know, something about human nature, when we read texts like this, we always put ourselves in David's shoes, but we're not David here. We haven't been anointed by Samuel and God, called to be king. You look at our lives, we're the Israelites who are scared back at camp, who've got giants... <laughs> standing in the valley, taunting us all day and night. 
And the great encouragement of this text is that God shows tremendous love for the frightened Israelites too. And the way he shows them love is not by just giving them an inspiring example to emulate. The way he shows them love is he gives them a champion and a representative to go before them. You know, we talked about this briefly, but when Goliath challenges the Israelites in battle, he doesn't say, send the army against me. He says, give me one man. Representational fighting. They are both legal representatives of their nations. And so if David wins, Israel wins. If David loses, all of Israel loses. Even if if you're not even involved, you don't even have to be involved. David, David, he's not just fighting for Israel. He's fighting as Israel. And when David goes and he slays the giant, the Israelites are declared victors, even though they didn't lift a finger. (laughs) You know, after he slays the giant, what do we see of the Israelites? Then they pick up their swords. Then they start running, because that's the fun part, right? Once the nine-foot-tall giant is down and the Philistines are running, then they're all like, hey, we're going to go to fight too. Like, we're going to go to battle. But the battle had already been won. David won the battle as a representative. He didn't save them through inspiration. David didn't get up in front of the army and said, remember boys, what we do in life echoes in eternity. You know, like gives them some roaring war speech. He says, I'll take care of it. And he goes and he takes care of it. And he saves the people. See, it's in this way that this story foreshadows a greater battle and a greater David. It foreshadows the work of Jesus Christ. The, the parallels And the imagery in this text are very powerful, something I never noticed before. But when the author tells us about Goliath's armor, typically we read it and we think about the size and how much it weighed and how big it was because he gives so much attention to the armor, more attention than anywhere else in the Bible to someone's armor that they're wearing. The size does matter. But what's fascinating is we're told in verse five that Goliath, he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze. Uh, And in the original language, it actually says that Goliath wore scales. That the giant comes out in scales. Goliath's not just presented as a giant, he's presented as a snake. And that imagery of the snake goes back to Genesis 1 when Satan, our greatest enemy, led Adam and Eve to sin and unleashed, you know, the greatest force he has against us in this world, which is death. Now here, the snake reappears, wielding the power over the Israelites, and someone shows up and defeats the snake. The parallels, they're pretty incredible. For 40 days, Goliath's taunting the Israelites and tormenting them and assaulting them. Jesus Christ spent how many days in the desert Satan being tempted, 40 days. And just as David used Goliath's greatest weapon, his sword. Remember, David didn't have a sword. So after the rock, I like how it says, sinks into his forehead, and Goliath literally bites the dust, like face down, what does David do? He goes up and pulls the sword, Goliath's sword, out of its scabbard, and he cuts off his head. I guess powerful imagery that's telling us David used Goliath's greatest weapon, his sword, against him. And Jesus Christ used 
Satan's greatest weapon that he has against us, which is death, to defeat death itself. Through his death on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated death. This is why the author of Hebrews, you know, Hebrews 11, lists this great, you know, pantheon of the the saints of old, and it, it says, remember, remember Abraham. It's the hall of faith. Remember Abraham. Remember Isaac, remember Jacob, remember Moses, remember David. It holds them forth as you're, because the, the, the church that the author of Hebrews was writing to, they were suffering and they were struggling. And he said, hey, don't forget about the saints of old. Don't forget what they've done. Don't forget how they endured. Remember, remember, remember. And then in chapter 12, the author says, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Saying, hey, remember David, but fix your eyes on Jesus. You need the examples, you need the inspiration, yes. But you really need is the representative. And Jesus Christ is our representative. One of the, the best verses that, that shows us this is Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Uh, I could preach a whole sermon on this, just these two verses. The author says this, since the children, that's all of us, since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, too, shared in their humanity. Why? To be our representative, like David represented the Israelites, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Friends, if you want to get courage, this is the verse you go to. Because what this text says right here, it says that apart from Jesus, we all live enslaved to a fear of death. Every one of us is afraid of dying. Whether you acknowledge it, you don't acknowledge it, death is kind of the great enemy. It's the thing that looms over all of our lives. It is the biggest giant in the land. And we fear death not just because it seems scary and it's unknown. We fear death because at some level, we know with, jet, with death comes judgment, and with death comes a reckoning. And what the author says here, what God speaks to us here, as I took the reckoning and I took the judgment, I took it for you. So when you die, you know you're going to continue to live. I took it from you so that you don't have to fear death anymore. What I love about this text is it says very plainly, one of the reasons Jesus died for us is so we would no longer live in fear of death. Jesus doesn't want you to be afraid. And so here's the question I want to put before you. <laughs> if Jesus went to the cross and died so that we would no longer be slaves to our fear of death, to set us free from our fear of death, do you think he really wants you worrying about your financial situation all the time? Do you think he really wants you worrying about your job situation all the time? If Jesus Christ laid his life down because he said, I don't want you to live afraid of dying, but I want you to live afraid of all these other little, smaller things. No. Like Jesus Christ came to set us free and if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed and you will be freed from your fears because the worst thing that can be thrown at you is death and he took care of it. And so all the other little things, man, they pale in comparison to that. 
Jesus, he conquered the big giant. The big giants of Satan, sin, and death. And he's given us his spirit so that we can face the smaller giants in life. And so I want to... I want to close by just asking you a question. What do you need to face? What do you need to step into? Maybe it's a fractured relationship and you need to go and talk to the person. Maybe it's a destructive pattern of sin in your life. It's just been going on and on. It's hidden. You don't tell anyone about it. You keep it a secret. We don't want you to live enslaved to that. Jesus doesn't want you to live enslaved to that. I want to encourage you to come and talk to someone. Talk to a pastor, talk to a friend, talk to someone. You know, we've said again and again, this is a church where we want people to be honest. And we recognize that that makes it harder because if everyone lies and everything's cool, church is easier in some ways. But it's not healthy. And we've committed to being a church where we're saying, listen, we, we are all deeply broken we are all clinging to Jesus. And if he wasn't our representative, we would all, we would all be up a creek. And so if you've got sin in your life that you're not dealing with, we would encourage you. If you've got broken relationships, we would encourage you to step into it. And maybe more than anything, I just want you to claim the victory Jesus has, has secured for you. He doesn't want you to be afraid anymore. He's given everything for that. So as we come to the Lord's table and we're reminded of the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. I pray that as we come to the table, we remember Jesus died so we don't have to fear death. And if we don't have to fear death, what do we have to fear? I also pray that as we come to this table, we, we remember that communion is not just a meal of remembrance, it's also a meal of anticipation. That the day is coming when the worst stuff that life throws at us, it's gonna be over. Disease, sickness, death, decay, it's going to be gone. I mean, the great hope we have, we live in this universe that's just filled with nothing but light, but there's this little black spot that we live in right now. And we know Jesus is coming and he's going to dispel that darkness once and for all when he returns. And communion is a chance for us to come and to anticipate that. So if you're here and you're in Christ, we encourage you to come forward to eat and drink. If you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, I just want you to know he gave himself to save you, to set you free from fear and to give you something that you can never find within yourself. Let me pray.